Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then the king sent and brought him from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring him produce, that my master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for bringing us here to worship together. Lord, I pray during this time, Lord, you would clear our minds. Lord, push away the distractions that so often will nag and distract as we're here. Lord, I pray you would be with Mark. Speak through him, Lord. I pray you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray you grant us open hearts, discerning minds, that everything done here today be for your glory and our good. In your name, amen. Amen. Good morning again. All right, I want you to imagine with me that you've been living in a house that's fully paid off, it's spacious, it's comfortable, you have a good job, which pays more, uh, more than, which, the job that pays more, more than pays for the food and the clothing and the needs, and plus more than that, gives you more than what you need, plenty left over, go out to a nice restaurant on a regular basis, purchase almost anything that you desire. Now imagine that. It's a pretty seemingly comfortable life, right? And then one day, without a whole bunch of uh, warning, you're fired from your job, you lose your home, and you're just scraping by day by day. On top of, of all of it, you have a disability which prevents you from actually being able to make a decent living. This is the position that Mephibosheth finds himself. His family, 
was once the most powerful, the most influential family in the nation of Israel. His grandfather was king. His father was the king-to-be. But at their deaths, Mephibosheth finds himself without a home. He has no family land. And due to his physical disability, he's limited in what he can do to provide for his family. Mephibosheth's family went from the top of the crop to rotting at the bottom. And until nearly a decade or more after his father and grandfather's deaths, he is suddenly called to Jerusalem to stand before the new king. So imagine what's going through his head. And what happens, though, is completely unexpected by Mephibosheth. Now, to understand what David does with Mephibosheth, we need to go back in time to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And I'm just going to give you a, a quick overview of it. Jonathan, Saul's, or Saul, Jonathan's father, um, and Mephibosheth's grandfather has made multiple efforts to kill David. He's seeking David's life. And Jonathan, Saul's son, and David's best friend, knows and accepts that David is the anointed future king of Israel. Meaning that Jonathan, who's in the line to inherit the throne, willingly and joyfully accepts David as his king. But he makes one request of David. And when David takes the throne, which is rightfully his, he says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of your enemies, the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So he says, if, if I'm still alive, still treat me as your friend, show me and my house your love. But the implication in that is, if I'm not alive, take care of my family, take care of my household. David and Jonathan that day make a covenant together before the Lord, a promise that David will remember after he takes the throne. And this is where he asks the question, is there anyone left alive in the house of Saul so that my promise can be kept? And someone tells him, well, there's still a son of Jonathan. And he's like, well, go get him and bring him here. And so Mephibosheth finds himself in the presence of the new king. What's going to happen? Is David going to take his life because he's the lone survivor of a rival family? His grandfather attempted to kill David. Is revenge coming? But Mephibosheth has nothing to fear. There would be no anger. There would be no death. All there is is kindness and love. This is what David says to him, which tells us Mephibosheth, he comes, but he comes with apprehension. He's a little fearful. Is my life on the line now? And David says this. He says, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore you to all the land, restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table. 
Mephibosheth's life in that moment is turned upside down. He was at the bottom, and now he's moving to the top. But why? What did Mephibosheth do to deserve such kindness? And the answer is nothing. In and of himself, Mephibosheth is unworthy of such kindness and love, something that Mephibosheth himself acknowledges to David. Now, when, I, when you hear those words that he is unworthy in and of himself, I'm not talking about every human being's worth being made in the image of God. This is what has he done, what has he done to deserve such love and kindness from David? And in the reality, he's done nothing. He's breathing, and that's it. And David says, or maybe I should say Mephibosheth says this, he pays, pays homage to David, he he gives him respect and shows him honor and he says, what is your servant, me, that you should show such regard for a dead dog such as I? Now, in other words, why would you pay any attention to me? Why would you take any interest in me at all? I'm, I'm nothing. I'm a dead dog, not worthy for the king to even look at. Now, that title, dog, let alone dead dog, <laughs> in the Old and New Testament is a very derogatory term. And it points to actual wild, feral dogs who scavenge for food. And so to be called a dog is to be described as a despicable and untrustworthy person. And in this case, this is how Mephibosheth describes himself. Who am I? I'm but a dead dog to you. And you're showing me this kindness? Because David has absolutely nothing to gain by showing such kindness to him. Saul's house has been stripped of all power, influence, and wealth. And even Mephibosheth himself brings nothing to David's advantage because he's been lamed and crippled in both feet since he was five years old. To be brutally honest, all that Mephibosheth brings to David is another mouth to feed him. Because there's no indication that he even plays an advisory role to David. And yet, David allows Mephibosheth to eat at his table. A significant position of honor in the royal court. He's eating at David's table is significant and important in this passage because we're given this information four times in 18 verses. And with the added information that he was treated like one of the sons, a king's sons, we see that Mephibosheth was treated as part of the royal family. He may not have had the title of prince, but he was nevertheless treated like a prince. All in order for David to keep his promise to his friend Jonathan. Not because Mephibosheth earned such treatment, but because Mephibosheth was the son of his friend. Not because Mephibosheth brought anything to strengthen David's rule, 
but just to keep a promise. By David's actions, Saul's lands are restored to his family. Mephibosheth's needs were more than met. Saul's line has shown honor. And David keeps his covenant that he made before the Lord. Now the beauty of Scripture is that we tend to sometimes ignore the Old Testament personally and we concentrate on the New Testament for multiple reasons. But when we come to the understanding that the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament, points to a significant historical event in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. It all points to that. Then we have to ask ourselves, as Christians, okay, then how does this point us to Christ? What does this teach us about Him if Christ fulfills the law and the prophets? Then how does this teach us and point us to Christ? Well, throughout First and Second Samuel, we have gone to the same promise of Christ over and over and over again. John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is a simple and yet deeply profound statement by Christ. No one can come to or reside in the loving presence of the Father without first turning to, trusting in, and believing in Jesus, the Son of God. He is the way to righteousness. He is the truth so that many, that many are trying to, striving to find. He is the life giver. Christ promises that if you believe and trust in me, I will give you eternal access to the presence of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through faith and trust in me. If you trust me, you will be with the Father forever. So then you have to ask yourself if that's the promise. Why would we deserve, deserve such kindness and such love? Certainly not because we've earned that kind of kindness. Because like Mephibosheth, we have nothing to bring to the king. What does a sinful, rebellious man like myself have to offer to the one who created and has all power over all things in the universe? What can I give to him that he doesn't already have? And ironically, what I give to him, he already owns. I give nothing to the king. In comparison to his strength, I am weak and feeble. In comparison to his holiness, I am a filthy rag. In comparison to his kindness, I am selfish. In comparison to his knowledge, I am like a newborn baby. So we like to compare ourselves to one another because I'm always better than one of my fellow human beings. But when I compare myself to the holy and perfect and awesome God, I am nothing. 
to use the words of Mephibosheth, what is your servant that you should show such regard for a dead dog such as I? None of us, none of us have earned such kindness from the Lord. And yet it is in our weakness and unrighteousness and selfishness and ignorance and sinful rebellion that the promise is actually given to us. See, Christ doesn't say, do this, then I'll save you. While we're doing this, he says, I will save you. So grab your Bibles, your Bible apps, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 6 through 9. Romans 5, 6 through 9. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. To eat at the king's table. To eat at Christ's table is to receive the Father's love for us. In our weakness, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, shape up and be perfect, and then I'll consider dying for you. He said, yeah, I know who you are. I know you have nothing to bring. I know you have nothing to give, but I'm going to die for you anyway. Christ's shed blood justifies us It makes us right in the eyes of God and saves us from God's wrath for our sins. And in saving us, He makes us a child of the King. 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Like Mephibosheth, King Jesus proclaims us members of the royal court, not because of any worthiness in and of ourselves, but because Christ, by his loving kindness, has promised to save to the uttermost those who trust and believe in him. Now, there is, of course, immediate benefits to eating at the king's table. So when you hear me say eating at the king's table, I'm talking about being saved, being saved by Christ. Because the immediate benefits are the love that we receive from the, from the Father drives us to show that same love to Him and to those around us. Not for our own benefit, but, for the, to, the, but to, the point, to point others, to point them around us to the one whose steadfast love endures forever. 
but there's also an eternal benefit. The love of God is not a one-and-done type of thing. If we have not earned His love and He gave it to us just because He gave it to us, it is also true that nothing can take us from that love. And what does nothing mean? Nothing. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, no powers, nor governments, no sin. If we are a child of God, none of that will remove us from the family of God. We are part of the royal family. And nothing will remove us from his table. We will remain in the royal house of the Lord forever. You know how long that is? All eternity. It never ends. Nothing will remove us from his love. And at the end of all things, we will sit at the table of the king what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb of God. And who is the Lamb of God? Jesus. So, turn to Revelation. We don't go there very often, do we? Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. This is John. He's writing this and he's been receiving these words. He's witnessing things in heaven. And then this is what he says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. So here's the heavenly host is raising their voice in worship. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So it's giving this vision, this, um, forgive me, I'm not an English, or this uh, metaphor, that the bride is meeting her bridegroom, that the church is now meeting her groom, Christ. They're coming together in marriage, in unity. So it's not a real marriage. Don't read that, okay? Like a husband and wife marriage. Literally, it's marriage, actually, did you know, is to point us to him and the relationship that we have with God and with Christ. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, and then here, verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We, as God's people, we receive blessing and honor and strength and, and, and power in the sense of being able to fight sin. That's the here and now. But in eternity... 
We will be sitting at the marriage supper, the table of the king forever. Is this a literal meal? I sure hope so. I like some good lamb just like anybody else, right? Well, most people, I should say. But I think what this is saying is there's a deeper meaning behind this. That Jesus Christ has made a promise that those who believe and trust in him will be saved from the wrath of God for their sins forever. All sins forever. They will be made children of God with all the benefits and privileges of the royal household. He's given this abundance out of his great and steadfast loving kindness. And when Christ makes a promise, he keeps it. And so those who love him are blessed and will reside at the table of the king in the presence of the king, in the court of the king forever. We will be provided for. We will be cared for. We will be loved beyond all measure forever. And so do you love the king? Do you love the king? Then know who you are. You are his child. He has shown you his loving kindness and made you a member of his royal court, not because you have earned it, not because you deserve it. Praise the Lord, right? We know our own hearts. We know what we're struggling with. We know the times we disobey God and And we stand firm on the promise of God himself saying, I have forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future, and will not hold them against you if you are my child. So we have not earned any of this. He has done it because he loves you. Because he wants to see his glory seen and shown through us. And because he is a God who always keeps his promises. And so if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then the king has called you his own. And so, to use the words of David, do not fear. As Christians, as believers, we do not fear death. We might fear the process of death, but we do not fear death itself. It has no power over us because we know that when we die, where are we going? Right into the royal court, right into the presence of God, right into the presence of our King. And so we do not fear. And until that day comes, we rest in the steadfast love of the King And until we can really, truly eat at his table, we sit at his table here on earth, doing like what we're doing now, worshiping God together as his people, praising and glorifying him, confessing our sins, and giving him the glory, and remembering he loves me because he promised to. That is where my identity lies. I am a child of God, and so I give him the praise. Father, I pray that you would 
in those days and in those moments and those times when we as your people forget, forget who we are. We get caught up in our failures and our sins. When the the thought of I have to be perfect before the Lord or this is too great for, for you to forgive, Father, that your son's blood covers all our sins. There is nothing that his blood cannot cover. There is nothing that you cannot forgive through your son. His power and his life is sufficient. His blood is sufficient to cover all of my sins. Father, remind me that, remind us that we are, we are yours. We are your children. We are of royal blood now. That you will care for us. That you will love us. You will be kind to us because that is what you have promised. Help us to lean on your promises and not on us and our own strength, Father. And through that, Father, may we give you the glory each and every moment of our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our final song together?